Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. I'm here once again. My name is Adam Burns, and joining me once again via the telephone is my co-host Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing this evening? You good? Yeah. Um, good evening, ladies and gents. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm pretty good. Um, yeah, things things are continuing to uh, improve slowly but surely when it comes to the virus situation. But um, other than that, I could be worse, mate. So yeah, things have started to be picking up in the Formula One world now, Corny, and obviously there's so much that we've got to talk about. Just a casual reminder to you guys, for those of you that follow us regularly, you would have known that last week we recorded an episode uh, to discuss and debate why we felt the Sebastian Vettel Ferrari dream was ultimately unsuccessful. Of course, we talked about how there was a potential that Vettel could win the Drivers' Championship this season in his final year at Ferrari. But if you haven't seen that episode, I definitely recommend that you check it out on our YouTube channel or on Spotify or whichever podcasting platform you do listen to us to. It's a really, really good in-depth episode on basically why we felt that Sebastian Vettel's Ferrari dream was not quite what it was hoping to be. So, uh, yeah, no, definitely give it a listen and uh, let us know what you think, of course, if you've got any contrasting thoughts or if there's anything that we missed out, do let us know. Um, So moving on to this episode, I think, Courtney, it's time for us to uh, go over what's in the F1 news. Okay, so uh, the latest in the F1 news, obviously quite a lot's been going on in the background, but uh, it looks like we've got finally, Courtney, we've got some confirmed dates for the Formula 1 season to get back underway or to get started. It's been... We are getting there. We are getting there. It's... We are slowly but surely, as as I stated when you, uh, you know, introduced me, we are slowly but surely getting there. You know, we have. I've, I've, I've started a countdown on the uh, DNF One Instagram page. You know, we are. Wait, it will be. So we are recording on. What was it Thursday the fourth? Fourth of June. So, yeah. so come tomorrow, we'll be only one month away from the start of the new season, Adam. Yeah, it's really exciting stuff. It's been three months since we've talked about. Well, it's been three months since uh, Formula One has been on hiatus following the developments of the COVID-19 situation where the Australian Grand Prix was postponed literally moments before practice was going to get underway after a few paddock personnel were tested positive for the virus and it proved unsafe. And since then, the world has been a very desolate and scary place uh, with a lot of countries and a lot of people been in lockdown and we've been deprived of that release that we would normally get from sport 
um, and other social activities as well that we do rely on. But of course, all for the greater cause of making sure that everyone stays safe and healthy and that eventually we'd be able to get back to it. Now we're at a point, Courtney, where it seems that Formula One management and the teams themselves are now back into a regular working environment. People are starting yeah. to really build up their and develop their yeah the um, the teams the teams went back to um went back to work on monday i believe a lot of the teams that's right yeah and they're starting to d- develop their operations again to really get themselves yeah. ready for the races that look like um assuming that there aren't any complications in the build-up to this in the meantime that they will be back underway. So just to give you a quick rundown, if you haven't seen, guys, this is the current updated calendar. Now, there are only eight races at this point in time uh, that confirm. More races are going to be confirmed in the coming weeks. But for the time being, I'm just going to run through some of the races that are confirmed at this point in time. So Formula 1 season for 2020 is going to get underway in Austria, in Spielberg, on the 3rd of July, that weekend, 3rd to 5th of July. And it will also return to the same venue on the 10th and 12th July, so the weekend after that. So you've got back-to-back races in Australia. Then a week after that, you've got Hungary. And then so be, triple header. Yeah, triple header, three, three races in three weeks. So we're literally, we're going to have Formula 1 going through out of our ears at the moment, considering that we've been starved of it for a long time. Um, Sorry to um, interrupt quickly, Adam. I just want to go on a quick tangent. Okay, something just dawned on me, okay? We have spent the past couple of months praying that things will improve and, you know, we'll be able to go outdoors. But in the next coming weeks, we're all going to be stuck indoors catching up on our sport fix, so it's not (laughs) like we're going to be going out. And listening to our favourite podcast, of course, in the meantime. Of course, in between. (laughs) Of course, and yours as well, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, that's why you tune in to us, and we love your support for it. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right, Courtney. We're going to get a massive influx. And of course, other sports as well. I mean, the Premier League um, yeah. will be returning soon as well. The Bundesliga in Germany, that's already started. Um, and so far, it, it's proven relatively successful. It's not ideal not having fans there, but they are proving that they're able to host these events and they seem to be managing it in the right way. So Formula One assuming that they adopt the safe measures and they've laid out a five-step plan, which I'm going to go into a little bit later on, then we should be able to facilitate these events with some relative amount yeah. of success. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know how you feel on the matter, Adam, but I, I personally feel that compared to, you know, other sports like football, cricket, rugby, or even tennis to a slight extent, I don't feel that Formula One is as reliant on the crowd to produce an overall spectacle compared to other sports? It really isn't. I mean, don't get us wrong, any sporting event around the world that has a huge following, it does rely on its audience to make a difference. It really does make an impact. And you see that impact. I mean, we were watching some of the Bundesliga football and you can see it's not the same. It almost looks like you think it was a training match. You can't really get engaged into it perhaps as much as you think you would. And perhaps when the Premier League comes back, we'll see this as well. The fact that there are no fans there. There's no atmosphere. It does make a difference. (laughs) Some clubs will have that, will uh, be more used to that than others. Um, But in Formula One, you're absolutely right, Corny. This isn't really a major issue. Yes, the fans do make a difference, but I'll be honest with you. I'm not exactly looking in the crowd or listening out for any chance or anything to say, because one, you can't really hear them. Even, even over these V6 turbo hybrids, you still can't hear them. And, you're mostly focused on the race at hand. So, yeah, you're right. I don't feel that Formula 1 is really going to suffer as much, except for if Lewis Hamilton wins and thanks to the best fans and they're not there, but, you know. Thank you to my virtual fans. I would really rate Lewis if he did that, just for banter. If the first race he wins, if he wins a race, we never you never know, but um, if he wins the first race and thanks to fans, best fans out there, it would be quite funny. But I'm sure Formula 1 has something up there sleeves to try and mitigate that uh, null effect of not having any fans around as sad as it will be the priority has to be to get the races underway and this was something they were prepared to do back in uh, a couple of months ago when they tried to get the Bahrain race underway which eventually got postponed as well so this yeah. is some... so they talking had a plan of... yeah and talking of Bahrain I, I feel that the absence of the crowd would be more noticeable during the European season you know compared to races like Abu Dhabi, for example, where 
the race is more about, you know, the glitz and the glamour rather than the crowd. Yeah, there are always a few exceptions to some races outside of Europe. And you're very right to say that the European fans definitely make up... Um, the In terms of the proportion of fans that flux to these circuits, the European fans come in their droves everywhere you go, and it's great to see. And those will be the ones that will be missed the most. Of course, there are a few exceptions, like the uh, Circuit of Americas and uh, the Japanese Grand Prix in Suzuka, which is always packed. Um, the, yeah. the Japanese fans are some of the most passionate and dedicated fans in the world. And I love, I, I love seeing the um, the hat designs every yes. year. They always manage having yeah. these like intricate F one cars on their heads. And, I, I'm, and to be honest, I'm actually jealous. I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> well, Courtney, I think I can put that on a bucket list to go to Suzuka one time. We'll go on a trip. Yeah, and uh, just well, to go there well, and get well, that. Well, all I want, Adam, I just, I just want to have one day in my life where I can have an MP44 on my head. That's all I want. <laughs> I think it'd probably be better to have one of those ones rather than an actual one. That might uh, cause a bit of a headache for you. <laughs> but you know, you no, no, you, you did say to me that um, the MP44 is uh, as like as a toaster. So there you go, I'll be fine. Yeah, I'm prone to exaggeration <laughs> a little bit when, with my metaphors, but um, in a way that Jeremy Clarkson was, you know, would he just go, is the best car in the world? You know, something yeah, like that. It was in 1988, to be fair. Yeah, that's true, it was at the time. But um, so moving along, obviously, we go off on a tangent all the time here. But so the other races on this calendar, um, after Hungary on the 17th to 19th of July, is you've got a double header again at, in, at Silverstone, back to back, end of July. And uh, first week in August, you've got the Spanish Grand Prix a week later, mid-August. And then there's another two-week break where you've got Belgium and Italy back-to-back rounding off until the uh, first week of September. So the, the important point here is, Courtney, is that I've seen quite a lot of stories floating around since the coronavirus was starting to have an impact in Formula One. That the minimum number of races needed to be completed to honour a Formula One season as, as uh, not, you know, to... Rule it as legitimate is the right phrase. It's eight as a races. Rather than an exhibition. Exactly, is eight races. Yeah. Now, of course, that may just be a coincidence why they've named eight races, but I feel like as a trial period, the way that coronavirus is being handled in Europe at the moment, um, which is actually relatively good in a lot of European countries. I mean, I know in the UK it's not as great, but it's getting better, and we're not going to be talking about that too much because there's so much to discuss and unpick from that and this is not the podcast for that so no we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna focus on uh on cars yeah Um, we'll we'll, we'll keep it we'll 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 save the politics for another time but guys of course if you want us to talk about other topics or anything off tangent as a separate podcast and do let us know in the comments if you'd like to hear that we've got some interesting friends who we can definitely bring on to uh (laughs) give a more in-depth rounded take which I would find very entertaining and I'm sure that was something we'll consider to do in the future but um love it I'd love it (laughs) I'm almost a bit intimidated by the prospect of what we've actually potentially unleashed here but profound statements profound statements everywhere (laughs) yeah but I digress so we've got those first eight races and of course more will be confirmed in the coming weeks as we said about the calendar whether we're going to have the European races then of course the Asian the American races etc Uh, as we mentioned in a previous episode this is the plan and with that formula one on their website have have published a five-step program or five-step plan if you like that they are going to put into place to adopt safe races so if you indulge with me in this one i'm just going to go through what each of these five points are before we discuss so the first of which is ongoing testing now that's Working with certified and recognised private testing partners, there will be regular testing of all Formula 1 personnel travelling to an event. Uh, Number two will be closed events, as we've mentioned. Events are currently not expected to open to spectators, guests or partners with only essential personnel allowed access. Now this is something that's going to be reviewed as the season goes on. Perhaps some of the later races or latter races in the season may allow some fans to safely be able to attend but of course for the first eight races that's definitely not going to happen so point number three minimal personnel kind of goes on what we've mentioned in points one and two where there will be a significant reduction in the personnel traveling to events not only by teams but also by the FIA supplies and F1 itself number four isolated travel now this is an important one Personnel will travel in an isolated manner using chartered flights as much as possible and private transfers between venues, hotels and airports to ensure a restricted bubble. 
And number five, social distancing measures and procedures will be in, put in place at all times with pre and post race ceremonies being altered as a result. Now, I think, Courtney, we've already talked about one and two, the ongoing testing being conducted in football, as we've already seen. So, you know, you can see how that's being effective and why that's actually important to make sure you keep as many people safe as possible uh, and yep. mitigate any risks as such. And in their case, it seems to be working. So for Formula One to adopt something similar, I think is a very good idea. Closed events, we've already talked about that with no one there other than paddock personnel only. And I don't know if that's going to include media. It might be a few exceptions, but again, under certain circumstances I to think, which we I don't think know. I that, that, will, that will be the thing I'll probably, on a personal note, I'll find the most surreal. Because you you, there's usually such a, when you're watching the... Um, the build-up to the race, there's so, you, you you have that hustle and bustle, don't you? It, it's, it's almost a part of the event, you know, seeing the the, the, the chaos and you know every, everyone's everyone just wants everything to be perfect, and you you can see it's it's it's, it's organised chaos. I think is the best way to describe it. Yeah, and it, you won't you won't see it, and it'll be um it'll be it'll be quite that that'll be a surreal moment when it first happened in Austria. I mean, we will see, we will see if there is a media presence there. Now, of course, we're nowhere near big enough to be even close to being acknowledged or considered to be any relevant media personnel that should be going to these events. I imagine there will be some because they're going to need a media presence there of some sort. How they manage that, I'm not sure. I remember seeing in Australia where they were trying to social distance from the drivers, but the media personnel were all clustered in together. So kind of defeated the objective amongst themselves. Yeah, particularly... You know, during the heat of the moment, if there's like a, a big championship changing crash, you don't think the media are not going to be like trying to run up to the uh, to the races as they um, come back into the paddock? Well, I think those things are probably going to be banned and prohibited from yeah, the start. Well, so it may just be restricted to pre and post race interviews at the chosen ceremonies or the range of times that they have at practice and then perhaps the post-race. I don't think you're going to have scenarios where, as you've mentioned, um, you know, they say, you know, two drivers crash and all of a sudden one of them is out the back and they're interviewed them afterwards. I don't know, but it just seems like those things are going to be prohibited for the time being because, of course, the last thing you want to do is someone major having a big incident in a critical moment in the championship and then they're absolutely swarmed by media personnel to get the, you know the latest information or the latest perspectives they're going to I imagine they're going to avoid that and it makes sense to do that um isolated travel as well so in the news there's been quite a lot of difficulties in traveling to certain venues most notably um home to us the Silverstone Grand Prix the in the British Grand Prix in Silverstone now the government had uh, a travel quarantine about to be put in place, the UK government, of about two weeks. Now, originally the Formula One Canada was going to have the British Grand Prix at the week after the first Austrian doubleheader where Hungary That's is. Right, yeah. They've had to push that back and Boris Johnson and the Conservative government in the UK have now granted them special permission to be able to do that. Um, and control, and obviously in a controlled manner to allow it to partake, but obviously within a time frame that's suitable to have the double header. So hence why that race has been pushed back, and it's been able to comply to that. So I think it's great to see that they've been able to come to a compromise. I'm sure all the eyes are going to be watching on both sides to make sure that this is managed as best as possible. Because the UK is a very delicate situation where say what you want to say about the handling of the COVID-19 situation by the respective authorities. That's not something that we're going to offer our opinions on. But the statistics clearly show that the UK has had more deaths and cases of COVID-19 than almost everybody with the exception of the US. Um, and that's just chucking a statistic. That's a fact. That's not like a debatable statistic. So eyes are going to be watching on the Formula One paddock and the UK government to make sure that all the personnel that are going to be travelling to Silverstone for this two-week period. And again, this will be limited to a few teams, but everybody's going to be travelling to and from. So it's not just going to be teams like Ferrari and Huss in particular. Everybody's going to be included in this to make sure that there aren't a massive influx or a catalyst of cases which trigger not necessarily a second wave, but puts the UK public at risk of 
uh, getting infected and such. And you know, obviously, we've seen how effective this is. This virus has been at being spread, um, not just here but around the world as well. So there's going to be a lot of eyes and a lot of um, attention to detail and in, in ensuring that the authorities and Formula One management are able to handle this situation as delicately and as well as possible. So a lot of pressure, but. You know, there's always going to be that trade-off. To have the races here, the last thing Formula 1 are going to want, and we've mentioned this in previous episodes about them living in their own world, is to be seen as a catalyst for creating more uh, cases of COVID-19. Because you could argue... and we mentioned spreaders. That, yeah. that, that's what it is, isn't it? The term yeah. super spreaders is what springs to mind. Absolutely. And we mentioned this in the episode a couple of months ago regarding the Australian Grand Prix, that whilst F1 were trying to get that race to go ahead... The fact that people were being infected showed that there was going to be the risk that F1 was going to be seen as a, a catalyst or a super spreader, as you mentioned, of spreading that virus in Australia. And obviously to fans and media personnel that were travelling all over the world that were going to go back to where their homes, wherever they lived, whenever that may be. And it, it just created a very difficult situation to be in. As Formula 1 are going to want to avoid that because obviously if it becomes a problem, it's going to jeopardise the rest of the season. And obviously yep. what follows after that. Um, considering the amount of work and effort that's been put in, the last thing they want to do is uh, you know, put a spanner in the works, pun intended. The only, yeah, the only the, the only issue when it came to the cancellation of the Australian Grand Prix was the timing of it. Like I'm open I'm open uh, are they are they doing the um are they filming the season again? You know for the documentary on uh, is it Netflix? Yeah, it's on or Netflix, Drive to isn't Survive. It? Are they are they doing it again for this season? I don't know. I know they had signed up for another season of it um, to their current deal, but I'm not sure. I think given this, the situation we're in, I wouldn't be surprised at all, and I'm pretty confident that they're yeah. probably going to miss it for a year and then review next season because the access that Netflix in particular require to produce these episodes and the content for these episodes, um, despite... Si- having selective editing methods for what they do show on that show and that's another thing for another day they need that um very close access to the drivers team personnel etc etc throughout the race weekend and the season they're just not going to be able to have that it's it's not yeah. even up for a debate so i don't feel that as that's a, a, you know yeah that is a bit of a shame because i would i i think that seeing the again more organized chaos in a build-up to that moment where they cancelled it just before practice, I, I, I would love to have seen the fallout to that. I would love to do it. It'd be, it'd be great entertainment. I'm sure it would. I mean, I'm sure a lot of fans of Drive to Survive will probably be thinking, well, I just want to follow Gunther Steiner for a season, really, and just call it the uh, the Gunther show. And, and he'll probably be just as popular um, as, as he's been the main attraction the last couple of years, Gunther Steiner, the Haas team principal in particular. But... Um, yeah, as interesting as it would be to see, I would be very, very surprised if we saw a season three of Drive to Survive this year. Um, it would most likely it'll probably come back, but you never know. I mean, a lot of things can change in a short space of time, so we'll have to wait and see on that one, but I'd be surprised if they did. So, I think the question remains that we probably do need to address. We've just talked about, obviously, what's going to be happening, what's planning, but I'm going to put a question to you, Courtney. Do you feel that now... The, is an appropriate time for Formula One to return. Do you feel that it? First of all, is it safe? Is it appropriate to return back um, in the way that football has? And do you feel that Formula One are taking the necessary precautions, or better still, can they manage this effectively without creating a potential catalyst for new coronavirus cases in the coming months? What do you think? So I think, in terms of timing, I think it's the perfect time. Um. You know, fingers crossed. The situation is improving worldwide. I know. I know the situation is worsening in you know in South America, but in in terms of the Asia's and Europe, the situation is improving. And you know, we've got we've got to try to get back to some kind of normality sooner rather than later for various reasons. So I think this is you know bringing back live sport. Is and is, is is a good indicator that we're heading in the right direction, and it and it gives and it it, it gives the um you know the the everyday people like myself and you Adam a bit of a lift, and it's important people need that right now. So I think I think it's great that they're doing it. 
Um, I, I, I do feel that the uh, the things are put in place should be effective, but we cannot forget that this virus is we're still learning about this virus, and um, they will have to heavily monitor new infections. But then you know the the testing regime should cover that, so I'm not too concerned about that. Also, overall, I do feel that this is the perfect time. But perfect time to do it because it's time. It's time for us to start getting back to normal as soon as we can. Yeah, I think the one solace that we can take from Formula One as an organisation is that, in some cases where we do feel that they are a little bit reactive rather than proactive in terms of their approach, which can sometimes be seen as a criticism, it certainly was in Australia. The one plus side of this is that the Formula One world as a whole are very, very good at analysing a situation over and over and over again to ensure that they have the necessary protocols to manage almost any situation it finds itself in. I mean, that's the nature of the sport. You know, you analyse, you adapt, you improve, you progress. You can't hold it back because if you stand still, you're going to be moving backwards. That's just the nature of Formula One. And... Seeing what's happened already, as we mentioned, in the Bundesliga in Germany, how they've got football back and, of course, the Premier League have had that three-phase plan that they're adopting, which I think they're now at the point of moving between phase two and three, um, which I won't go into that, but basically what that means is they're now at a point where their contact training, players are turning up, they're being tested regularly, staff are being tested regularly, and they're at a phase now where it's literally a point of match fitness before they start playing again, rather than actually... Um, a health thing where they're not protected. So for Formula One to see this in action and see it is working and the methods that they would have had and the environment they find themselves in, as we said before, the personnel that is there, there's so, there's so many opportunities for them to protect each other. I feel that they're in a good position and they've got the right people, they've got the right personnel to be able to manage this properly and not feel like it's being rushed. I mean, as we said before, if there's one sport where every piece of data is analysed to the point where it makes you black and blue in the face, um, or you're sick of seeing all the data, it's Formula One. They always make that informed decision based on the data that they have. They don't try to guess. I mean, strategies is fine, but they don't try to guesswork or take risks. They won't commit to something until they're 100% certain it's safe. So I'm pretty assured that they're, they're going to be fine with that. In terms well, of... It's, um, it's interesting that you, um, that you mentioned, you know, contact training for football players. Um, it's become more and more apparent that the drivers are now taking on their um, own regimes to... Uh, Get some kind of preparation for uh, returning to their cars. No, I, I know, I know, um, Lando Norris, for example, he's going to be testing in his old British F3 um, car. Yes. And Mercedes today confirmed that they're going to be having a test day. So one for Valtteri, one for Lewis. Next, is it next week at Silverstone? Uh, yes, and for, and also Ferrari are going to have another a similar test day themselves. Uh, two days as well like Mercedes are. so yeah the programs are coming up and they're going to be racing in 2018 cars of course to comply with the rules so they're not using cars too similar to test their actual cars um, just to get their drivers up to speed and yeah even though I've said all of those things about it being safe do I feel that it's too soon perhaps in an ideal world where we wouldn't have to worry about the economy or you know, giving people a lift and, you know, the need to have sport in our lives, all the other things that on the surface do not, are not better or not more important than health. If you, if the, you know, none of those was an issue, then yes, we could probably afford to wait a lot longer. However, yeah, balancing act. yeah exactly. And, and this is the, and this is the thing they would love to be a hundred percent certain that no one knew is going to be infected by this. And they can't guarantee that that's life. But given what we've learned about this virus and how they've put these measures in to make sure they can mitigate the risk as much as possible, Formula One has always operated with a risk element in terms of its safety. That's something that they will always strive to improve as much as they can throughout this sport. It will never be 100% safe. And because of that, it does allow them to operate with those variables 
to kind of come up with the right answer and say, yes, we can do this, we can manage this. Um, there's always a risk, but they can manage it. So hopefully they can do that and we can start to see the World Championship starting very soon. I mean, I'm massively excited. If it doesn't sound like I am, I'm immensely excited and I cannot wait to see. Of course, we're finally, we're finally going to have some uh, solid content, apart from the Vettel, uh, the Vettel news. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, some, good, uh, some good stuff to talk about. And that's what you guys want to see as well. Um, you know, so that's that's obviously a good thing, you know, for all of us involved. So we're looking forward to that. Um, that's why we started this podcast, of course. But um, so moving on from that, actually, there's just a couple of races in particular that I wanted to mention that they've thrown their hat in for future venues. Of course, the only eight have been confirmed so far, eight races, and a few in the news have been quite interesting. Of course, Hockenheim, the German Grand Prix, which was not on the calendar for this season, is offering to throw its hat in there. Of course, we won't be having a Dutch Grand Prix in Zandvoort. That won't be happening until 2021 now. Of course, no Vietnamese Grand Prix either in Hanoi. Um, so it does create opportunities for some races to throw themselves in, and one of which was Hockenheim to host the race. Even Portugal in Estoril. We're going to try. Wow, and that's cool. all, the, all the classic circuits are uh, are uh, trying to get their uh, their opportunity to yeah. shine again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, there's, it'd be great to have a race back in Estoril again if it could host one. Um, plenty of classic races there in the past, and of course. Quite notably as well, other than Soshi and Rasta as well, which offered the double header, um, which some fans haven't exactly been overly enthusiastic about. I can't <laughs> say I've been enthusiastic by the Soshi prospect. But um, one race was Imola in San Marino. Now, Formula One hasn't had a race in San Marino since 2005, I believe. 2005, yeah, 2005. Wasn't that when, uh, when Alonso... Managed to keep Schumacher behind, if I remember rightly. Yes. I, 2006, actually, I should say. Sorry. Yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely right. 2006, yeah. I haven't had a race there since then. That legendary race, as you said, Alonso kept Schumacher behind in the final stint. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend it. It's one of the best pieces of defensive driving you can you can ever watch from Fernando Alonso. And, of course, the duel between them two really epitomised their battle for that season. It was one of the best championship fights I'd ever seen. And it was a real changing of the guard moment between those two, from Alonso taking the baton away from the all-time legend that is Michael Schumacher. And I don't even need to go into how significant that was. You just name the names and you can feel how titanic that was. Um, and uh, yeah, Imola's always been a legendary circuit, for good and for bad reasons as well. But it's a circuit that loads of fans of Formula 1, diehard fans of Formula 1, I've really enjoyed in the past years, and I, for one, would love to see a return to this, to, to the Formula One calendar for Imola. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. I've been hearing rumours about them throwing themselves into the into the hat to be chosen. Likelihood is it probably won't, but you never know. Yeah, because it, yeah, it depends. Um, it depends if Formula One stick with their continent plans. Yes. Exactly, and this is why I felt that they've named eight rounds for Europe. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't name any more. But of course, it's meant to be a 22-race calendar this season. Whether they get 22 races in, I don't know. I feel like the target is going to be 17 to 18. And over a two-month, well, three-month period between July and September, they've got eight races. So any mathematicians will know there's another three months after that. So I imagine perhaps another eight or nine races, perhaps. So, yeah, I don't think you were going to be expecting to see any shocks like San Marino. As fun as it might be, Hockenheim is realistic, perhaps. You know, a double race at Soshi, not a popular choice, but definitely not one that can be ruled out, of course. Um, John, it would be nice to see some um, some European races in uh, September and October where the weather would be more likely to be changeable. Well, Spain in August is going to be an absolute scorcher because Spain is usually oh, yeah. a lot. Spain, the Spanish Grand Prix would happen normally around May um, in the Formula One season. The fact that it's happening in August is going to be a very difficult one, a track that's quite abrasive on the tyres, the test circuit for the Formula One teams. And obviously the last time we saw them was at Barcelona. So that is going to be a fresh challenge. And I think in the coming episodes, we'll talk a bit more about who we feel might have the advantage at some of these circuits under this revised calendar, because we have to remember, just because we're having these races, don't assume that the pecking order from testing is going to be the same as it will be in these races. There's a lot of varying conditions where a lot of these Grand Prix are going to be taking part 
in times where they're going to be different to what they would have been yeah. in the original Formula 1 calendar. I mean, not so much Italy or Belgium. They're around about where they would have been. But Spain, definitely. Not Silverstone or uh, Hungary, probably. But Austria as well. So, I mean, Spain is the one in my, that I'm seeing in this calendar that is definitely going to be happening in different conditions um, to what we would have expected in, in if the season had happened under normal circumstances. So that's something that we might see a trend for this season, but that is the one in particular that might throw up a shock um, for the normal pecking order. But we'll see, we'll see. If it'd be, it'd be like a, it'd be like a Malaysia style race. Yeah, possibly, possibly. You never know. Um, so moving on to the next part, I should say, um, we've been talking about obviously the, the races that have been coming up or what we expect, but one of the options, while we're on the subject of uh, throwing up some different ideas and throwing up some new experiments if you like for this season as strange as it's been is the prospect of having reverse races for qualifying now this is an idea that's been proposed to and in, and in the simplest way possible i'll break this down to have qualifying um in the double headers not necessarily all of them but in the races where there are going to be double headers like austria britain um possibly italy as well after belgium but it's going to be a prospect where they'll have a reverse grid qualifying. So in that second race of the double header on the Saturday, instead of having your standard qualifying session where you have the three time sessions to to eliminate cars and then you have the top 10 shootout for pole position, what they're going to have instead is you will line the cars up in a 30 minute reverse grid race. And this will be based on championship order. So let's say Lewis Hamilton is leading the championship. He'll start at the back of the grid. And then you'll have uh, Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, etc, etc. They'll go on, have a 30-minute race. Um, and the idea is probably not going to be no pit stops. Just 30 minutes time where wherever you finish in that race will establish the grid order for the race on Sunday. So there won't be any points to reward you for winning the race. The primary incentive will be the higher up the order you finish that reverse grid race, that's where you start the actual race on the Sunday. Now, as a traditionalist and a regular F1 fan, I look at reverse grid ideas in the same way that people look at DRS and that it's just an authentic way... It's not an authentic... Sorry, it's not an authentic way to make the racing more interesting. It's like... um an orchestrated or an artificial method of making it a little bit more exciting. It's like a gimmick. Yeah, exactly. And it does sound like a fun idea and it might spice up the, you know, it might make that qualifying session a bit interesting. And obviously, however that pans out, because that's going to be critical. Every place is going to be critical. So you won't have people trying to conserve tyres and trying to manage their race strategies. You have people trying to go for it, bunzai moves and literally go for overtakes that wouldn't normally go to try and get an extra qualifying spot and obviously the risk is if you retire you're going to be at the back of the grid well yeah we see it in um you see it in journey categories don't you with sprint races yeah the races tend to be a bit more entertaining so i i, I understand the sentiment but personally I, I wouldn't like to see it in formula one i think the main reason why i think even though this is not i don't necessarily think it's a bad idea i mean i think we should make that clear as i said i'm a traditionalist with these ideas I don't necessarily like reverse grid races because I feel that there are artificial methods of trying yeah. to make the race more interesting like DRS does. And and that's not popular because of how powerful that can be, for example, at places like the Camel Strait in Belgium. You can't defend there. It's just literally your way since be overtaken. It's pointless. And reverse grid races do look like a fun idea, but the problem is with and why I feel like this will not be a thing for the 2020 season is... We've got a very limited calendar as it is. We've got eight races that we know of, and of course, that's going to be under review all the time whilst we manage this COVID-19 situation. But at the same time, all of the rules and regulations that the teams would have been aware of in terms of formats for races have already been agreed. It It's a yeah. lot more complicated than just simply plonking all of the cars in reverse grid order to manage their races. Because, of course, in those races... Teams that have stronger aerodynamic, uh, stronger aerodynamics on their cars, or more susceptible for to drag, one in particular that has been the case for many years now, was Mercedes, will struggle 
in these reverse races compared to a team that perhaps has less downforce on them that to go through tra- that has an easier time to go through traffic like Ferrari. Uh, yeah. We've seen Vettel showed that in many races last year and Leclerc with a very powerful engine and you're able to overtake cars and finish on the podium. It's going to create a problem for them. And this isn't me saying, oh, Mercedes will complain. I mean, Total War's very outspoken about this. He doesn't like this idea. He doesn't want reverse grid races. And perhaps there's that might be one of the reasons why. What I've just explained about Mercedes' susceptibility and difficulty in overtaking cars in turbulent air. They'll struggle in a format which penalises them for being at the top of the championship. As fun as that would be to see. I just feel that the teams in general have their ideas and have their plans put in place to manage their cars to race in a format where its quickest car starts at the front and so on and so forth i just can't see them in general for something like this um being seen as an experiment for other years when it's a potentially an actual championship is going to be competed this year we're not doing this for fun this isn't an exhibition event i just can't see them going for an idea that goes against everything that they've been doing because if you wanted to have these kind of things in in Formula 1 on a regular basis, you'd almost be trying to build a car or design a car in the future years to be better at overtaking and following other cars. Now, of course, the new rules, Courtney, for 2022 are going to be designed with that in mind. So it might not be a bad idea to think about it then. But for the time being, I just don't think it's a good idea to implement something like that. Um, Or last minute. Yeah, last minute. And... The qualifying conundrum has been an ever-present problem in Formula 1 for so many years. I mean, if we look over the last 20 years of Formula 1, there's so many different systems. We had the the former one-hour qualifying where everyone would have 12 laps to go out and set your fastest time. And of course, what the, the problem with that was the first half an hour of the session, no one would go out because the track would progressively get better the later the session goes. So you'd have half an hour... People trying to set time, the slower teams would set their times early because they had a clear track and then do some more laps later. And then the faster teams wouldn't come out until it was about 20, 20, 25 minutes to go. So that was pointless. Then you had that uh, system where you had the um, the one-shot qualifying where you had everyone having one lap, which everyone got to see everyone have one lap, but it just meant a lack of on-track action. It was just one car at a time, which was boring. Then you had the other system where you had two sets, where you had the provisional one to establish the order of when you came out to do your lap, and then you did your lap. But the problem was that always benefited the drivers that came out last because the track was at its peak rather than the drivers that come out first. You had these, yeah, see, I feel, yeah. like, I feel the, current, the current format is the best format. Yeah, it's a very popular one. And, I mean, yeah. I could go through some other ones which are completely mundane. I mean, do you remember the knockout one before? Yeah. Oh. The knockout format that lasted two races. <laughs> that was dreadful. For those of you that don't know, a couple of years ago, they uh, Bernie Eccleston at the last minute approved this new knockout f- form of qualifying where you'd have a time limit to set your time. And after about every 90 seconds, I believe it was, Courtney, the slowest car would be eliminated. And then what that meant was if you were about to do an outlap and then your flying lap... You couldn't finish your flying lap if the time ran out. It was at that point where you were in the order. If you were the slowest car at that point, you're out. Regardless of what... If you were on a lap to do pole, it wouldn't have counted. So you ended up in a situation with about six, seven minutes to the end. Nobody had enough time uh, within the, in the certain position to go out and do a lap. And I think it was, uh, I think, four minutes to the end. Nico Rosberg didn't feel the need to go out and do another time because the only other person that beat was Lewis Hamilton and he wouldn't have enough time to do his lap. So it was a complete ridiculous um, suggestion and it ended up completely... I mean, some people have said it could work. I'm not one of them. I'm very much against the idea. And, and And I feel that Formula One tries to spice up the racing by worrying about qualifying. They never really look at the race itself because they're very much against the idea of... um messing with the purity of a Sunday race. And I'm fine with that. But I don't understand why their main focus for so many years, the last two decades in particular, to improve racing has been around qualifying, rather than focus on what they have been with the cars. I know know, know we kind of touched on it briefly, but I would would like to see sprint races. I would like to see them. It's a nice idea, 
and it's something that works well in the Formula Two and Formula Three races. Yeah. I had to, uh, but as again, uh, maybe I'm old fashioned, or people put in the comments, "Okay, boomer." I don't know, but I, I'm one of those people. I don't like to mess with the race itself. I feel like the Sunday yeah. race should be fine. I, Just leave it as well, it I, is. I, I feel, yeah, because I feel that if you were to bring in. Say, for example, it was to bring in a, a sprint race. You know, it's, it was just an idea. But if you were to bring in a sprint race, you'd have to consider the reward for it. Mm. You know, I wouldn't want it to have like a... I wouldn't want it to have a big effect on the championship itself. I would like it to be almost like an exhibition. Yeah. That makes sense. I wouldn't want it to have like a major impact on the championship because you're right. They, as as I, I, I do like to see myself as a bit of a purist myself. And the, I, I do like the current Sunday race format. I think it's just, it's very important to leave that as it is. I just feel yeah. that if you wanted to try and change things so much to improve the racing, I feel like the current format that we have has been tried and tested and been experimented and they haven't come up with a system that's been proven to be better. If anything, suggestions for qualifying that they've tried to implement have just completely blown up in their face in the most dramatic fashion. So I feel like they just need to leave that alone and focus on improving the cars, make them better for racing. And I think if you can do that, you'll have a better show. And let's not forget, Courtney, the second half of last season was brilliant to watch compared to how bad... I mean, we had the French Grand Prix last season, which was one of the most boring races I'd seen in my life. There was a point, even for me where part of me felt like I can't be asked to watch this. The only reason why I'm watching the end of it is because I'm a hardcore Formula 1 fan. But even then, I'm like, oh, wow, this is dreary. Like, there literally was no action. Of course, obviously, what happened in the final lap between Raikkonen, Ricciardo, Norris and Sainz, other than that, there was literally nothing else going on for the rest of the race. But isn't isn't that, isn't that a prime example of, like, why we're... Uh... We like well. One of the reasons why we're doing this then is to sell Formula One, and I've always felt that with Formula One, you can think that a race is going to be boring, and all of a sudden, bang, out of nowhere. Mm. I mean, we all look at Germany last year. Yeah, that you know, that, and and that kind of epitomised how crazy the end of the season was. Even though Lewis Hamilton had the championship wrapped up from as early as Canada last season, in some regards, it you, just there was so you, much you, about you it. Hmm. Blimey. Yeah, there was so much about it that we really enjoyed. So, no, I mean, that, I mean, they he'd won what was it? Mercedes had won seven or eight out of the first nine ten races. Yeah, and Lewis had won like yeah. six of them. Um, and Bottas, despite his strong start in Australia, was never really able to keep that going. And then he just fell back into the Mercedes number two wingman role, if you like. Which you know it wasn't really apparent that often, but you could clearly see that. Hamilton was in a league of his own and there was no one that could catch him. It was, of course, they talked about the idea of Leclerc and Verstappen, but they didn't have the machinery to do it. I mean, Leclerc certainly didn't have the machinery, so you had to pick and choose your battles to watch elsewhere in the end of that season. But, of course, we want the racing to be interesting, but we don't want them to try things that aren't proven and are sort of last-minute thoughts, I think, with much respect. I mean, reverse races have been thrown as an idea for a long time but it's had so much opposition um, and support both ways. It's been you know, such a risky... I just don't feel like you're ever going to sell people on it in the way that the current qualifying format is, and I'm happy with it. And I feel like... Yeah, but, you know, if, 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 it, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it might be fun to see, but I just don't think it's something that I would we would enjoy after a few races of doing that. Um Especially when it's for qualifying as well, because obviously it impacts race. But, you know, that's my opinion. If you guys have a different opinion, let me know what you think in the comments. Let, let us know if you think they should have reverse races for qualifying in the double headers, or if they just stick to the more traditional format that we know and love. So, um, moving on to the last few little bits. Now, of course, one of the major talking points that we haven't really focused on since it's happened is the news about the Williams team. Now, uh, over a week ago, the Williams team had announced that they were suffering pre-tax losses of £13 million for the year. Now, that's a big deal in Formula 1, quite a bad thing to happen. And a team as big as Williams, to hear them say that they were strongly considering selling a portion of their team, or all of it, um, to an external buyer, is quite worrying and very sad for 
Formula One fans that know Williams that have contributed so much to the sport, the second most successful team in the sport, um, behind Ferrari, believe it or not, to hear them talk about their financial struggles, which we've known about for a long time, the decline that Williams themselves have faced, it's quite worrying for them and their future. Uh, and it's something we need to talk about in a future episode, why Williams have declined so much since the last it's, World Championship they've had. Yeah. I mean, this is a team who, as we said, the second most successful team in the sport behind Ferrari. They, and obviously Lotus as well, were up there with them as well. And they haven't won a championship since 1997 when Jacques Villeneuve won for them, when they did the double that season uh, against Schumacher and Ferrari. Since then, there's been so many changes and so many loss of personnel and money and etc. etc. that we'll go into that's really contributed to their downfall. Of course, they had periods where they were at the top, of course, in 2003. Very unfortunate to win a world championship that season. Uh, they had 2014 and 15 where they were very strong against Mercedes, but again, it fell away. For a team that have struggled the last couple of years with money, and of course, the issues they had in testing last season where it wasn't until day three where they got a car out because the car wasn't ready and they lost key personnel as a result of that, you know, and, and how bad the car was performance wise compared, you know, compared to everybody else in the field. The fact that this season, Courtney, they've made strides to improve and they look competitive again, not necessarily well, at the front. Are. Let's, let's hope they are come mm. the new season because they need it. But they don't look like the, the stragglers at the back of the field. They may be at no. the back, but they're certainly there to compete. They're not going to be having a race between Russell and Kubica last season. Like Russell's definitely going to be, have a car that he'll be able to showcase more of his undoubted ability um, that we're all dying to see what he can do. And of course, Nicola Latifi, runner-up in, in F2 last season, we're keen to see how he's going to do. For a team like Williams, their history... Uh, and reputation precedes them as an organisation. One of the oldest teams in Formula 1, of course, Frank Williams, the owner and founder of the team, run now by his daughter, who is doing the best she can, but the writing's on the wall for Williams, and I worry, and I really do hope, and it, and this also comes in with the news that they've now terminated their title partnership with Rocket as well, so they're looking for a new title sponsor as well. I do worry for them and fear for them that in the current climate with the COVID-19 situation, yeah. that there's going to be a reluctancy of investors and buyers wanting to buy into something which I believe does have wills in terms of a long-term project. I really do believe in Williams. They can get back. But well, it's who's they are, gonna, they are yeah. one of the, you know, historically one of the biggest names in the sport. So, you know, if you want to put it in black and white terms, there's no reason why they can't. But yes, it's it's the timing of it all. Like, who's gonna who's gonna come along and invest in them? Exactly, and and they've had title sponsors in the past. They had Martini for a few years. Obviously, they had the Rocket partnership. Um, ever since, in my mind, the ban on tobacco and alcohol sponsorship, to some degree, of course, the Martini one was a bit of a loophole. But ever since you know they've stopped that, Williams have really struggled to secure long term title title sponsors. They had. They boomed when they had the HP partnership um, mm. back in the early 2010s. and uh, Sorry, but earlier than that, sorry, in the early 2000s up to 2010s. Yeah. And, B and the BMW partnership as well. When uh, Back in 2003, you could argue BMW had the strongest power unit engine at the time. Certainly stronger than Ferraris at the time. And, you know, Williams, they looked very competitive. And since then, they have not really looked like a team anywhere near what they were during their former glory days and I just hope as a fan of the sport that they will be able to find a way through this situation be able to recover their financial difficulties and not be in a position where they have to sell up their team and and lose their identity because so many teams in the past have done that and Formula 1 is very unforgiving but this would be by far the biggest loss to the sport if Williams does go down that route and have to uh, leave the sport for financial. Of course, they've mentioned they've got oh, the yeah, funds. It's the way, it's the way yeah. they're leaving, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they've mentioned they've got the funds to compete this season, so it's not a case of... Uh, there. It's, it's just future projects beyond 2020, so I'm hoping that they don't end up in a situation where they'll have to fold altogether. But, of course, this is a developing story, and, of course, when we know more, we'll let you guys know. They and need points, though. They, they need, do. They need points. They do. 
And uh, as I said, they will need points this season. Russell needs points as well, as he didn't score last season, despite his brilliant performances in that car at times. And uh, it's definitely an episode that we need to talk about in the future, about why Williams' downfall since 97 um, has been so dramatic compared... Nothing like we've ever seen from anybody in this sport. You'd never think a team 23 years ago was at the top of the sport, dominated most of the early 90s, with the exception of a few years for Benetton successfully and McLaren, of course, later on, you would never have thought Williams would have been in that position now. But that's the brutal nature of the sport. Um, and hope we all wish for the best for them in the future. So uh, coming on to the final point, Courtney, of course, um, the last five minutes of this podcast now, there's been a lot of news floating around the futures of a few drivers. Now, of course... A few other people in certain roles, there's futures are a bit uncertain as well, and one of which is Toto Wolff at Mercedes. Now, Toto Wolff, team principal at Mercedes, has been heavily influential in orchestrating the dominance that they've had in this turbo hybrid era over the last six seasons, where they've won every Drivers' and Constructors' Championship in a row, equaling the success of Ferrari and Michael Schumacher in the early 2000s, of course, with the opportunity to beat that this season with Hamilton as well. Total Wolf in particular has been lined up for many opportunities and many roles uh, within the FIA, which obviously he's talked about and shown some interest, but he feels that his allegiances and responsibilities in the sport, unlike Ross Braun's, who moved into those FIA roles, of course, um, would rather work with you know with his team with as a team principal now the reason why we talk about his future is mercedes future is definitely very much linked to the future of their current projects and what makes them strong one of which is total wolf the other one is lewis hamilton whose contract is still yet for renewal despite the changes going on in the paddock at the moment lewis hamilton still hasn't signed i believe one of the big reasons why this may be the case as much as the money issue as well is what is Mercedes and Toto Wolff's future respectively going to look like in the next three or four years? And does Lewis Hamilton want to commit to something that may not have legs? And it's weird to talk about a team like Mercedes who have dominated the sport in the way Red Bull had in the early 2010s, obviously better than that, Ferrari as well in the early 2000s as well, and many teams before them that have had equal, um, equal legacies or equal eras of success, if you like. Toto well, I Wolf. Think, I think when when teams have dominated does like well, any sport for such a long time, it's it's having the motivation to keep it going year after year after year. So they have to they have to reevaluate things, don't they? They yes. have to find new motivations, new new limits to strive for. If that makes sense. You're right. Yeah, and. Um... And that is a big factor. I mean, some of the great drivers and great champions and teams have always strived to look for the next championship. You know, keep going and keep going. That's what makes these legends so great is the fact that they're not satisfied with one. Some drivers are. Raikkonen satisfied with one championship. Nico Rosberg won a championship and then retired. Sometimes that's enough for some people and they don't have that mental strength like Rosberg mentioned to carry on like a Lewis Hamilton does by contrast. And... In Total Wolf's case, there's not much more he needs to do in this sport to really prove or cement his legacy as a team boss. He could almost have any job that he wants in the sport. And he's financially invested in Mercedes as well. He owns 30% of the Formula One team at Mercedes. You know, he's the largest stakeholder within that. And obviously, as recently as April, he's purchased around 4 or 5% of shares worth in Aston Martin the uh, and Lagana in the... Uh, the racing team that's going to be taken over from Racing Point in 2021. Uh, now, these shares have been diluted to about just 1% now. I won't go into what that means because that's a bit boring accounting stuff that I know you guys aren't interested in. Nonetheless, there is a growing interest and influence in Racing Point, Aston Mar- the Aston Martin program that you like, that has been forefronted by Lawrence Stroll and uh, Otmar Safner and Andy Green at Racing Point, respectively. Now, with Toto Wolf in your mind, Courtney, how do you see this? Do you feel that there's a chance that perhaps Toto Wolf might go to Aston Martin from Mercedes? 
Um, or do you feel perhaps this is more of a financial incentive that would create opportunities for a potential partnership between Mercedes and Aston Martin for the future? Yeah, I, even before you said it, I was going to go with the latter. Um, I, I do feel he's looking at you know as many ways to benefit the Mercedes brand because he's, he's got a big role in Mercedes and if, look... I, I, I can't speak on behalf of the guy, but if you've already got invested that much time into the brand, surely you're only you're only going to look to become an even bigger part of the brand and you know promote it and get the best deal for Mercedes. So I, I do feel that he's looking for a deal with Aston Martin. It's interesting you to say that because this has a lot of impacts. I mean, I think personally when you've got the Aston Martin team will be based at the same place as Racing Point at their Brackley Centre which is obviously having a massive refurbishment of the factory they're having a new simulator a new wind tunnel put in it's a big project that Lawrence Stroll is investing 200 million pounds worth and there's so many opportunities for this team to grow and become a real front runner for years to come these this is the team that I believe um, that are going to be making shockwaves in Formula 1 in the next five years if anything Given the situation going on at Mercedes where there's no guarantee this may happen, if I was Sebastian Vettel, I would very much consider Racing Point or Aston Martin as a serious option for next season if he plans to commit. I said that in the um, in the Vettel fallout episode. Mm. You know, after, after his announcement he's leaving Ferrari. Because particularly now with the um, with the cost cap that are coming that are more likely to uh, a more even playing field. You're right. It could really play into the, the the hands of a team like um, Aston Martin. Yeah, and we and we shouldn't discount that co- what you've just mentioned about the cost cap as well, because it's going down to 145 million, and then it will go to 130 million from next season. Um, the 145 from next season, I should say, and then obviously going down further. The bigger teams are going to have to really downsize their. Formula One teams like Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes are really going to have to downsize them to manage to work in a similar capacity to what they already had, but with less people. I mean, there's no, it's cut and dry. There's no avoiding it. Teams that, these teams spent more than double that on a yearly basis. Yet they're the only teams that do, and yet they're going to have to downsize. Whereas Racing Point have been very famous over since the last five, six years of being a team that's operated within a hundred, 110 million pound budget or dollar budget. And performed well and above uh, above the expectations to finishing yeah, fourth. Yeah, they, they they tend to start the season strongly as well. Mm. So having this cost cap wouldn't affect them. If anything, it would give them license to have this extra money invested into them from this St- Lawrence Stroll led consortium. And obviously, if Total Wolf's involved as well, great to be able to spend more money to improve their infrastructure, their car, and everything else. Whereas the bigger teams have to learn to work like a racing point, which isn't easy. And that could be the big thing that they're looking for. I mean, we've seen the card, you know, the de facto W10, if you like, um, that they're running at the moment, the RP20. And it looks like a good car from the get-go, like one of the cars, not to challenge the top three, perhaps it could have done if we started the season in Australia, perhaps not now. Um, We don't know. It might do. You know, I say this and then all of a sudden they get a podium. I don't know. But... All the signs there are looking good for them. And maybe this is something that might entice Total Wolf, not just to have a partnership with Mercedes, but to take over as potential team principal in the future. We don't know. But the wheels are turning and things are starting to increase. All the, like New developments are starting to show themselves to make this rumour a bit more likely than a rumour. And this has huge ramifications. Imagine the scenario. Let's entertain the scenario briefly, like for the last part of this podcast. If Toto Wolf joins... Aston Martin in the next couple of years or perhaps if he resigns from Mercedes uh, announces he's leaving him at the end of the season what that could create a situation where Mercedes as a team may not continue to function in the future they may decide to pull the plug on it uh, with Total Wolf having a large stake in there those resources might be used to support the Aston Martin pro- program at Brackley which may lead to a situation where perhaps Lewis Hamilton doesn't stay at Mercedes much longer he may be tempted to join Aston Martin Sebastian Vettel may be tempted to go to Aston Martin as well um, and you could see a situation in the next five years or so where Aston Martin become like their formal uh, partners Red Bull 
in being like the new kids on the block, sending shockwaves and winning world championships. It's quite exciting to think about, and it has huge ramifications in the sport. If someone like Toto Wolff was to move to Aston Martin, their appeal just goes up tenfold. I mean, I could go yeah. out on a limb and say, if Toto Wolff joined Aston Martin, Sebastian Vettel may sign for Aston Martin, because Aston Martin would love a driver of Vettel's calibre and you know, a legacy to really promote the brand and the team as like a marquee signing. It's huge. I mean, it's kind of like the equivalent in football of, you know, a brand, you know, a Leicester City after they won the Premier League to try and send shockwaves to the rest of the league to keep this going and sign a Ronaldo or a Messi. You know, making that kind of marquee signing that you wouldn't think possible for a mid-team, a team that was formerly the best of the rest or competing for it, to then go and sign a top driver like a Hamilton or a Vettel. It's not something that seems like a pipe dream anymore it could be really it could be a reality and i think all that's best to say is we'll have to wait and see what the next weeks and months show us i mean the total war situation may not be resolved quickly but if he does leave mercedes which, i think you know, i think yeah i think i think the situation with lewis will be the indicator because he'll know more than anybody what's going on behind the scenes and i feel like the lewis hamilton situation could very much be influenced by what happens with Toto Wolff or vice yeah, versa. You you never know that what private discussions they're having. Um, but I think that's a, probably a good time to sort of wrap up the end of this podcast. Now I've been going on for just about just over an hour now. Uh, so much for the forty five minutes that we targeted. <laughs> we tried, but there's so much. It was a lot. Oh. There was a lot to talk about in this episode. I think you've got to give us oh, that. Too. We need we need to do this. We need we need to do a forty minute uh. episode. Yeah, we'll get there eventually. There was a lot to cover in this one. But uh, guys, of course, as we mentioned before, obviously, you know, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. The handles are going to be on the YouTube video. And of course, uh, if you don't, if you listen to us on Spotify um, or whichever podcasting platform you go on, the social media handle for Twitter and Instagram is DNF1 underscore podcast. So make sure to give those a follow. Of course, like, share and subscribe to us on YouTube. It really does help us out. Thank you so much to everyone that supported us so far. And let us know in the comment section, guys, what do you guys think? Do you think now is the right time to get Formula 1 underway for the season? Are you happy with the calendar so far? What do you think about the potential for reverse grid uh, grid qualifying races on the Saturdays? Um, What do you think also about the Toto Wolf situation? Um, Do you think he's going to stay at Mercedes? Do you think he might go to Aston Martin Racing Point? Um, do let us know what you think. And if there's anything else you want us to talk about in future episodes, let us know in there. Comment. Let us know. Engage with it. We'll definitely be reading and getting back to those of you that do. So make sure that you let us know what you think. And uh, I think all that's left to say, Corny, is uh, thanks again for joining me and co-hosting another episode of this podcast. I think it's episode 15 now. 15, how about that, eh? So, uh, yeah, it's certainly, uh, certainly going strong. I'm, I'm pretty happy with what we're doing so far, and I'm really looking forward to not only producing more race analysis content now that the season's close to being underway, but I think you guys are probably looking forward to hearing us talk about it too, um, considering we've been so starved of major talking points um, whilst we've been in this uh, COVID-19 hiatus for Formula 1. But it looks like we're finally finally going to see Formula 1 racing return to our screens very, very soon. And I'm, yeah. and I'm so looking forward to that and talking about it as well, of course. So uh, unless there's anything left to say, guys, uh, thank you very much again for listening to another episode of DNF1 F1 Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. Take care. See you soon. Podcast Network.